0: days before the 2016 election, the U.S. Department of Education issued a new rule requiring every state to rank their teacher preparation programs based, in part, on their graduates' value added to student test scores. Four months later, however, Congressional Republicans repealed that rule. Were they right to do so? The question isn't just a matter of score settling. Even without a federal mandate, 21 states in the District of Columbia have in recent years opted to rank teacher prep programs by their graduates' classroom effectiveness. Are these policies a promising strategy to improve teacher prep? Or are they an instance of test-based accountability run amok? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Paul Van Hippel, associate professor of public policy, sociology, statistics, and data science at the University of Texas at Austin. Along with Laura Bellows, Paul is the author of the new article, Rating Teacher Preparation Programs that will appear in the summer 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Paul, welcome to the Ednext Podcast.
1: Thanks Marty, I'm glad to be here.
0: So the 2016 rule that motivates your piece was issued under Title II of the Higher Education Act. And in a nutshell, this part of the law establishes reporting requirements for teacher preparation programs that students attend with the support of federal Pell Grants and student loans. What exactly did the new rule that the Obama administration tried to put in place on the way out the door say?
1: Well, the rule required states to produce report cards for their teacher preparation programs. And these report cards would rank programs into three or four categories. A program could be low performing, it could be at risk, it could be effective, and in rare cases a program could be ranked as exemplary. And the rankings had several components, but the most important component was the teacher value-added test scores. Uh, In fact, a program couldn't be classified as exemplary unless its teachers had exceptionally high value-added.
0: And so this is just one example of the ways in which this emphasis of trying to improve the evaluation of teachers, basing it on growth in student achievement when that information was available, really permeated much of the Obama administration's K-12 education reform agenda, I guess. Uh, They really pushed states to adopt these evaluation systems to use them to make human capital decisions. And in this case, they were extending that logic to teacher preparation programs.
1: That's right. But it's not just the Obama administration. As you said, 21 states were already doing this by the time the regulation was repealed. So this is really a push that's happening uh, across the education sector.
0: And the rule was obviously intended to address Long-standing and, in my view, quite legitimate concerns about the quality of the preparation prospective teachers receive. How exactly did proponents expect the rankings to address that problem?
1: Well, the idea was pretty straightforward. Uh, the idea was that programs that produced the highest value-added teachers would rank at the top, and programs that produced the lowest value-added teachers would rank at the bottom. And once you had those rankings um, and you published them on the web, they would function a lot like college rankings. So aspiring teachers could use them to f- choose a training program, and principals could use them to decide which programs they wanted to hire from. Government leaders would use them to decide if a program might be shut down or if its funding could be cut off. Um, under the federal regulation, there was a particular desire to cut off uh, uh, funding for certain kinds of teachers uh, if their programs had persistently low rankings. And all of that would put pressure on programs to improve and move up in the rankings.
0: On the surface, at least, that sounds like a pretty solid theory of action. Uh, I guess not everyone was convinced. Randy Weingarten of the American Federation of Teachers said that the program uh, was fundamentally flawed and warned that the rankings would be biased against programs whose graduates teach in high-need schools. Congressional Republicans complained more broadly about another instance of what they saw as federal overreach. Your article highlights a different set of concerns. What's the problem that you uncovered, and and how did you become aware of it?
1: Yeah, it's a different problem, actually. Um, I I should say that um, Weingarten's claim that uh, these rankings would penalize teachers who uh, teach in high-need schools I'm not sure that really stands up to the way the regulation was finally written. Uh, The regulation actually gives extra credit to programs that place a lot of teachers in high-need schools. And these value-added scores that were going to be used were going to be adjusted for uh, factors like school poverty. But the concern that we developed was different. We were hired to develop a program scorecard for the state of Texas. And when we analyzed the program data, we found two fundamental issues. Um, The first issue was that it turns out programs didn't differ very much in the value-added by their teachers. So in Texas, there are about 100 programs, and only one or two of them really stood out, and and those programs didn't stand out by much on value-added. And all the other programs, the other 98 programs or so, were practically indistinguishable. And if that's the case, it really undermines the whole justification for these scorecards. So suppose a principal who's looking at applications for an open teaching position looks up the applicant's program on the web, that's not going to lead to a better hiring decision if knowing what program a graduate comes from doesn't predict whether they're going to be effective in the classroom. So that's the first problem with these scorecards. They just uh, they don't really predict which, which, uh, uh, which teachers are going to be more or less effective. The second problem is that the program rankings have a lot of random noise in them, and the random noise effectively takes these programs, which are truly indistinguishable, and kind of spreads them out in a way that looks makes them look much more different than they are. So you look at these rankings, and it's hard to forget that it really looks like some programs are much better or worse than others, but that is an illusion. The programs are effectively being ranked at random.
0: Yeah, You said that your findings were that the programs don't differ very much. In the article, you show a chart that lays out the performance of the programs, and I'd say at first glance, it looks as if you can discern some high flyers and some real underperformers, and that's where this random error comes in. So help us understand how that works and and how you really investigated the role of random error.
1: Yeah, it's random patterns, once they're graphed, are very compelling and they become real in our minds. Um, Nassim Taleb wrote extensively about that in his book Fooled by Randomness. You know, you, you see, uh, there are famous examples where people see a stock price chart that was generated, that's not a real stock price, it was generated at random, and they think they see all kinds of patterns and think the stock is headed higher or lower. Uh, and it's it's really just a random pattern. And the same is true with a lot of these program rankings. Um, there are just a lot of factors that go into these program rankings that programs don't control and that aren't reliable from year to year, and those are going to cause programs to bounce up and down in the rankings in ways that really have little to do with anything the program's doing to get better.
0: So what would be an example of one of those factors? Presumably something like the just idiosyncratic quality of a cohort that happened to come through the program in a given year. Would that be one?
1: Exactly, yeah. So anybody who's worked in in higher education or education at any level knows that some, some years you just get a good crop of students. Uh, and it's it's not because of anything you did. And the next year you might have a crop of students that's not as strong. And those kinds of things... Uh, can really affect how how effective your program looks from year to year, but they're not stable and they're not under the program's control.
0: Now, when you conducted your analysis in Texas, similar work was underway in some other states, and some of it was consistent with your findings. One group of researchers in Missouri, for example, found little evidence of systematic differences in effectiveness between teachers from various programs, but there were reports out of Louisiana and New York City that, reported quite substantial differences between programs and the Department of Education cited those differences when issuing the rule. Was Texas just unique, maybe?
1: Uh, you know, at first we thought it might be. We were looking at our results and we were confused. We didn't understand why we weren't seeing the big differences that uh, were being reported in other states. Then the Missouri results came out and that gave us more confidence. But we still wondered why the results from New York City and Louisiana looked so different. And, and we just didn't know. And it was confusing because everyone had different data and had used different methods. Um, and the, the policy conversation was proceeding despite the fact that there were discrepancies in the literature. So the, uh, uh, the Department of Education went ahead and issued these regulations even though there were different. It wasn't clear on the whole whether programs were different enough to be worth ranking in this way. So um, what Laura and I did is we went back and we reanalyzed the results from six different states including Louisiana and New York City, the, the two programs that you just mentioned, uh, the two states that you just mentioned, uh, as well as uh, Texas, Missouri, Washington, and Florida. And we used a consistent set of statistical methods. And the reason we did that is that everybody previously had analyzed their data differently, and we just couldn't tell whether the different results people were getting were driven by their methods or by something about the programs in their state. And what we found is when we used a consistent set of statistical methods, we got the same results pretty much for every state. Within every state, the program rankings were mostly noise. There was maybe one or two stand-up programs, if there were any, and the other programs were practically indistinguishable. Uh, But again, the danger was that the noise made those indistinguishable programs look more different than they were.
0: So the bottom line is that most of the differences we observe between programs, even in cases where they might achieve statistical significance, are likely just the result of chance. And that seems like solid grounds for rejecting this ranking approach, but let me play devil's advocate for just a moment. Could it be the case that simply implementing the rankings, providing an incentive for schools to focus on producing graduates that are effective in raising student test scores could be beneficial regardless of whether the rankings are in fact informative?
1: Well, um, institutions certainly do change their behaviors in response to rankings, but I'm not really sure what incentives a system like this really presents. I suppose if a program thinks it can move up in the rankings by working harder or working smarter, then that might be a good incentive. But if programs figure out that they can't predictably move up in the rankings, because rankings are assigned almost at random, then what's a program's incentive to improve?
0: Yeah, and what lessons can we learn from those that appear to improve if, in fact, it's just a function of random variation? Yeah. So as we noted earlier, though the regulation was meant to address a serious problem, the poor and presumably uneven quality of teacher preparation and the lack of program accountability for performance, you appear to suggest that value added is not going to be a useful metric to address this problem. Is, Is that right? Um, I actually don't
1: have a problem with value added. I think it's telling us something um, real, and I think even if you measured teacher quality in another way, you'd probably get a very similar result. Programs just don't differ that much in teacher quality. I mean, some teachers are better and some are worse, but there's not much evidence that the best teachers are concentrated in in certain programs. And, And that's not just true in teaching. If you look at just about any profession... The research shows that the institution somebody went to is just not that predictive of how productive they're going to be in the workforce. There are great workers that went to colleges or trade schools you never heard of, and there are workers who went to name-brand schools but turn out to be disappointing at work.
0: So, So should state and federal policymakers just throw up their hands then, or are there other metrics that might be more constructive to try to rank programs and ultimately provide a basis for learning about what's effective in teacher prep?
1: Well, there are a few other metrics in the federal regulation. Although our article is really focused on the value-added angle, um, there are other metrics there, which we do discuss at the end of the article. One of the ideas that we liked the best was just to track programs' record of actually placing and retaining graduates in the teaching profession. So what percentage of a program's graduates are actually becoming teachers and what percentage of those graduates are still in the teaching profession two or five or ten years later? And what percentage of those graduates are teaching and persisting in the highest-need schools? Uh, What we like about these metrics is, first of all, they're pretty easy to track using state employment records, and they're important because we know that teachers improve substantially with experience. In fact, the difference between a new teacher and a teacher who's persisted in the profession for a couple of years is much bigger than the differences between teachers from different programs.
0: So one last question before we wrap things up, Paul. You mentioned that your study had its origins in a request to you from the state of Texas to develop a ranking system for its own teacher prep programs. Is Texas now one of the states that has gone further down this path, or did your research convince them that it wasn't worthwhile?
1: Well, um, I don't have uh, direct insight into the decision process at the Texas Education Agency. Our contract with them lapsed a few years ago, and they've had some changes in leadership, but... When I look at what they've done, I have to say that I'm pleased with it and it's consistent with our advice. If you look at their website, you'll find that they do now report metrics for each program in Texas. And the metrics they report are straightforward and reasonable. They include the percent of applicants who are admitted to a program, the percent who complete a program, the percent of completers that pass a certification test that enter the profession and that are still in the profession five years later. And I think those are all very reasonable things to track and not particularly hard to measure. What you won't find if you look at Texas's uh, program metrics is there's no value-added metric for program graduates. There's a column for that because it's required by state law, but it's blank. And the notes say that data for this measure are under development and there's no standard for it at this time. So given that uh, state law requires the agency to rate programs on value-added. I think that describing the metric as underdevelopment shows an admirable level of restraint. Uh, our findings, after all, show that the vast majority of Texas programs couldn't be meaningfully ranked on value-added, so I think the state's absolutely right not to publish rankings on that metric, and I hope they continue not to publish them. In fact, I wish more states would show restraint and not publish program value-added rankings because they don't tell us much Um in some states, I think, it's not that they don't tell us anything, in some states I think you could single out one or two programs uh, and say, these stand out on teacher value added? But beyond that, there's just no policy value in ranking programs on value added.
0: So in Texas, it may mean that underdevelopment is a way to comply with a law without really complying with it.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I don't know what the uh, policy decisions are behind this, but uh, yes, exactly. Um you can uh they can't say we're not going to do this because it's required by state law, but if they say it's under development, they don't have to publish the rankings.
0: My guest today has been Paul Von Hippel, professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Along with Laura Bellows, he's the author of Ranking Teacher Preparation Programs, an article that's available now at educationnext.org. Paul, thanks for being part of the podcast.
1: Really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.